Hello, Les Raymond here with the Mindful Movement. Whether you are about to enjoy one of Sarah's beautiful meditations or dive into a podcast interview, I would like to remind our community that the best way to support the Mindful Movement is to support the companies that make this happen. Sarah and I are very picky about the companies we choose to work with, and we are grateful to have the relationships we have and to share them with our listeners. You can learn more about our affiliates through our website by clicking on the Favorites tab. We are excited to have recently added Sunlighten as an affiliate. They make state-of-the-art infrared saunas, and their founder, Connie, came on for a recent interview if you would like to listen. Our Sunlighten sauna has been a family favorite for over a decade. Some of our most popular affiliates are the grounding mats from Ultimate Longevity, which we sleep on every night, and the Apollo Neuro, which Sarah is now wearing daily to help manage stress. When you support these brands, you in turn are supporting the mindful movement and helping Sarah and I continue to devote our time to this passion. Whether you check out these companies or not, I just want to say thanks again and reiterate how grateful Sarah and I both are for all of the support over the years. I hope you enjoy the episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Mindful Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Les Raymond. Thanks for tuning in for another episode. I had the gratifying opportunity today to extend my thank you to Erwan LaCour. Erwan has had a big impact on my movement journey. Erwan is the founder of MoveNet and the author of The Practice of Natural Movement. Through his work, I have been inspired over the years to look at the outdoor space that I have access to through a different lens. I look at my outside now as really is an extension of my living space, and I've incorporated the outdoors with my fitness and my movement practice. The benefits I've gotten from this have equated to just a giant upgrade in my sense of well-being. There is something about connecting with nature and really integrating it into the way that you spend your time that has a dramatic impact in your overall sense of well-being. I hope that through this conversation, the listeners could find some inspiration to see what outdoor space you have access to can offer you as you look for ways to integrate that environment more into your way of being. I hope you enjoy the episode. All right, I have Erwan LaCour from MoveNet, the author of The Practice of National uh, of Natural Movement and a national record holder with breath holds. Erwin, thanks for joining us today on the Mindful Movement Podcast. It's my pleasure. I got to tell you, first of all, I have to just say thank you. So you've had a big impact on me. You don't know this. We've never met, but many years ago, uh, when I was deepening my movement practice, somehow I stumbled upon uh, YouTube videos of a man running through the woods barefoot doing all kinds of um, playful activity that looked completely at one with nature, completely in tune with it, resonating with the earth itself. And I was inspired. Since then, 
uh, well, that I mean, that inspired me to go out in the, the woods in my backyard to lose the shoes, lose the socks, connect a little deeper. And it's been a real beautiful journey, what has unfolded for me in my own movement practice. Um, so I want to thank, say thank you for that inspiration. I think there's a lot of people out there that you've never met that you have offered that for. So I really appreciate it and will forever be grateful. It's altered my course of my movement practice. I do appreciate your kind words. Thank you for sharing your, your feedback. I was your... actually really sure. I was a, I am a gym owner in Maryland. And one of the trainers I hired years ago, who's, who's been on this podcast, her name is uh, Laura. She uh, connected with me looking for a place of employment. And when I saw on her like resume uh, that she had gone through MoveNet, I remember being really excited because I thought through her, I could learn a little bit more of your techniques because I have not gone through your, uh, your certifications. But I would love to hear a little bit about more what MoveNet is, why you created that, how you got into that. And I know you've been doing a lot in the breath uh, breathwork world and you're as I said a record holder for breath holds which I find fascinating and I'm always open to learning more about breath and its relationship with our physiology so I think you probably have a lot to offer me and my audience so maybe we could start off by um, just having uh, some context of how you got into movement in general and and what brought you to where you are today well, all right, so that is a that is a lot to cover. I, I know we only have fifty minutes, or so you could compress that. <laughs> okay, so let's start with MoveNet. You were talking about that uh, one video that you watched many years ago. Indeed, that was two thousand eight, two thousand nine, maybe. And I was going through nature, doing all kind of movements, but those movements that you would do in nature, which are to run to crawl to jump and climb and balance and to overcome many forms of obstacles in nature and i call that movement which is the name of the method that i've created and i've also coined the term natural movement for that idea that we human beings all of us regardless of what we look like and where we come from are um, are meant to move a, a way that is universal. We have like a foundation that we all share of movement. That is natural movement. So natural movement in that sense, it's not going to be yoga or tai chi, which are, which stem from a specific culture, like from India or China or wherever that is. Natural movement is what you see all young children do, regardless of, again, their background, their ethnicity, in Africa, in Europe, in, in, the, in, uh, in the Americas, in Asia, anywhere you go, you'll see young children go through the same process of developing the same movement abilities, which are, they're gonna be crawling, rolling, um, they're gonna start to stand and then walk, ultimately they'll balance and run and jump and land and climb and lift things and toss things and, so why is it that it's, it looks like it's a program, a universal program, a physical program that is instinctive? It's truly universal and it's truly instinctive. Every single parent all over the world is gonna to try to tell their kids, please don't do that. Don't vault over the couch. 
don't crawl under the table, don't jump, jump off the chair, and so on. And why? Because all this, these kids, boys and girls, are expressing the same human movement patterns. And those human patterns, the, the totality of it, I've called natural movement. Now, all of us have done it. All of us can do it. But to what extent do we still do it? And to what, with what level of efficiency or effectiveness can we still do it as adults? That is a different question. Now, when we, when we can dismiss the necessity of those movements, we are basically, most of us culturally, socially are raised and trained to dismiss the necessity of those movements. But why, as an adult, why would you crawl on all four? Why would you hang and climb anything? Why would you jump and land? Um, except if it's part maybe of a very specific, very regimented fitness program. But otherwise, it's gonna, you, you think that you will look weird if you do these things, that you're not supposed to do those things. They're, it's for kids or it's for animals or something. It's not you, it's not, it's not supposed to be part of your expression as a person. <clears throat> well, that's, that's too bad because that's actually natural movement. It's a birthright. We all should do it. It keeps us really healthy. It makes us feel good. It's a little, if you were to put a, any wild animal in an enclosure and then tell them, you know what, you can only walk in circles or swim in circles. How depressing. Yeah. Well, that's what's happening to most adults today because we stand, we walk a few steps to the next seat and then we sit and then we sit for hours and then we stand up, go to the next seat, repeat, and we do that every day. So where's the movement expression? Where's, where's the natural movement that we once knew and experienced and had when we were kids? So <clears throat> MoveNet is a method that teaches you First, that authorizes you, that inspires you, that enables you to express all those movement abilities again as a form of fitness. You do this, you move that way naturally, you'll become fit naturally as well. And not only we do that, but we teach people techniques so that they can do all these movements in a way that is safe, and effective, of course, but also efficient. It's a little like a martial art that would extend to many other uh, practical skills than just being able to defend yourself. Um, you don't go in a bar to learn or in the street to learn you know, how to fight. You don't start fights out there with random people. No, you go to a, a special place with a teacher or sensei, a master, whatever you want to call that person. And they're not going to send you back to the gym so that you're fit enough so that you can learn techniques. Straight away, they will teach you, okay, these are the basic techniques that you need to learn. Why? 
Well, because efficiency is, is paramount. It's the most important. So the same applies to the way you run, the way you jump and land, the way you hang and climb, the way you balance, the way you move on all fours, the way you breathe, all of that. This is what the MoveNet method teaches people. And ultimately, you are going to acquire what we call real-world physical capability. You become capable to operate your body in the real world if needed. And by the way, typically, you know, when you need to move furniture or when there is a real issue, like a threat maybe, and you need to respond physically, typically you're not going to do yoga, you're not going to do tai chi, you're not going to do ping pong, you're not going to do uh, crunches or sit-ups or no. What are you going to do? Run for your life? lift and carry somebody to say theirs, climb and jump over the obstacles so that you can get out of a tight spot or reach somebody who needs your help, etc. That you are in the military, that you are a law enforcement, that you are especially a firefighter. Look at the movements they need. Look at the physical capabilities they need. It's absolutely natural movement. They need to run and jump and land and climb and balance and lift and carry heavy things and so forth. It's funny so you what say better, that. What a better way to, to do fitness, to train your body, than to learn to be physically helpful to yourself and others by learning those techniques and by becoming specifically fit in the process. That's the move that mindset. It's funny you say that. There was um, locally, the fire department has um, a test in my county, and I'm sure many have them, where it's a fairly physical demanding test. And I went through it because some of the local gym owners in my area got certified to help uh, people that were trying to pass the test, that were mm -hmm. trying to become firefighters. So we were able to like put together programs for them in the gym to pre better prepare for it. But the test is, I mean, there's a section where you're crawling through a tunnel. It, it's basically trying to represent uh, carrying your equipment up a high rise and saving someone's life. And there's yeah. a part where you're crawling through a tunnel that's about uh, three by three feet wide on all fours with a 70 pound weight on your back in the dark and feeling your way through. And yeah, you're dragging a 180 pound body. You're putting up ladders. You're opening up doors with uh, like a sledgehammer, like all this um, things that we wouldn't really associate with like exercises we do in a gym. But I had the, I went into it with no specific training for the test. But uh, at this point, years of flopping around on the floor, you know, lots of crawling, lots of loaded crawls, lots of weird carries, lots of outdoor work, barefoot. And um, it's, I mean, I don't think it's coincidence. It served me really well. First try, pass the test with no, and um, and it was, I was kind of impressed by how they put it together. I mean, it was hard and it seemed to be really well thought out, but it was anything but um, orderly and structured. It was, you know, what's real when something actually happens? And yeah, these these like innate patterns that are kind of hardwired into our DNA that we express in the first year of our life when we're learning to respond to our environment, the gravity, the ground, the three planes that we live in and how to, you know, with our anatomical design, 
like respond to those environmental parameters to learn how to move our body and navigate through space. All those things are like built into everything that was meaningful. And um, it's really nice to kind of draw those connections. I'm also always amazed when you look, when you relearn some of the more fundamental movement patterns that we develop in, you know, very early childhood, few months old, as an adult, as we reconnect with them and you realize how hard they could be, like how challenging. Yes. Um, like these little transitions from lifting your head up to, you know, progressing to higher positions where you have to manage force going through your body. Um, and in a way that is very challenging and kids do it without anybody telling them how to do it. So they do this very challenging thing where adult, you see, I see adults every day in the gym shaking through these. They train all, they train all day. Yeah, they train all day, but no, none of the adults in the room are saying, now draw your shoulders down or like there, there's no direction and they're still doing something that's hard. Yes. <clears throat> because it's a program. It's, it's a universal program. Yeah. It's, in, it's in us and not that they are not learning on the way, obviously, um, a six years old is more able of movement than a four years old. And then the two years old, and then then will be eight years old, ten years old, twelve years old. Imagining that not only they would be let free to to keep exercising their body and exploring their abilities that way, but even supported and or encouraged to do it. Then imagine what they become: twelve, fourteen, sixteen. Forces of nature, very athletic, naturally capable of jumping, landing, climbing, again, doing all these real world movements. And why would you not call that fitness? That is the real meaning of fitness, but it's beyond how much can you bench or what your glutes and your abs look like. That is not the concern, even though if your overall lifestyle is healthy and you do train that way, you bet that you're going to have a very good athletic looking body. Yeah, the form definitely will follow the function. Yes, yes. Sure. but most importantly, the function. So if you have a body that you make to look a certain way that is deemed to be looking fit by modern standards, and you put them to the test, to that kind of test you talked about, the kind of test that we at MoveNet put people through, very simple movement sometimes, just just squat, um, just uh, get down to the ground and back up without using your hands or your knees. Can you do that? And most people realize that they just can't. It's not even anything complicated. It does not require a lot of strength. Um, and yet there are so many limitations. I've seen those limitations, including in um, elite um, like MMA fighters or, or special operators. I've, I've seen them sometimes struggle with some of the most most natural and you know, simplest natural movements. Right. Why? Because it is really not part of people's lives no more, okay? Those, those movements are totally taken out of our day-to-day -day behavior. So after a few years of that kind of neglect, it, we lose it, right? We have uh, chairs and couches to sit on. So at what point do we need to get 
up and down to the ground or to squat for ex an extended amount of time or to hang and climb anything or to jump off anything or over or around anything. We don't. We don't, yeah. We don't, we don't need it at home. We don't need it at school. We don't need it in the street. We don't need it uh, at work. We don't need it um, at the gym. Right, so in some professions, there are some you know, some professions. Some people have to climb a certain way or some kind of up, you know, whatever poles or trees. And um, in some other jobs, they need to hike or they need to lift things. Typically, it's very specialized. Few people, like um, firefighters, have jobs that require from them that they have. A baseline of, of capability in, in that full scope of of abilities that are again that are again physical capabilities for the real world. Do you still well? I mean, when I saw those videos of you, uh, I see you now. I see <laughs> a changing in the color of the hair on your beard, as with mine. Um, you've, you know what I mean. We are getting. Uh, I'd like to say wiser. We're getting older. Do you still in? incorporate all those that's that practice do you integrate that into your life on a day-to-day -day basis still not on a day-to-day -day basis necessarily but but frequently enough and um and most importantly i have my own um i have my own ways to practice and i have my own way because i'm <clears throat> just like anybody else i'm I'm busy, you know, I have, um, I have work to do, I have children to take care of, et cetera, et cetera. So I know how to manage my body and to test my abilities in simple ways to know how capable I am. And if I need to train a certain way or specific things to just maintain um, the baseline that I know is um, you know, what I'm capable of, that I've always been capable of. So even being 51, um, all the things that I could do at 41, 31, I still can do them. That it is uh, running, swimming, lifting, climbing, jumping, all of it. That's great. Um, and that's what matters. Rather than, oh, okay, do you practice every day or do you... But what is for sure is that it's not luck a sport where you'd be like, oh, okay, I cannot perform at the highest level, like when I was 20 or 30, so I quit. No, um, it's a mindset. The mindset is that which of, I am a human being, I am physically capable, and I must keep myself physically capable for myself and others, starting with my family, my children, um, if anything happens, physically I can respond. As an example, as a father, I can show them that um, even at 51, I can run, I can climb, I can jump, I can land, I can hold my breath, I can swim, I can do all these things. My children know that <clears throat> Papa, because I'm originally French, so we say Papa instead of Daddy, um, can is not, um, you know, like a <clears throat> walking clumsily when he takes off his shoes or unable to run more than 50 yards because he's out of breath or he could not hang from anything he would land or right away or he could not carry both of them 
on his shoulders and and so forth. So it's a it's a mindset, and you need to also think of not only maintaining those abilities for yourself the longest you can, but also to do so because that's an example you set for the future generations, starting with your own children. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like it's on one hand, it's important for us to work hard on ourselves to set that example. And almost like the flip side of the coin, I feel, is that kids in some ways are our best teachers. Like if there's a fountain of youth, it's it's look at what little kids do, do what they do. So, yeah, they get on the ground, they move, they run, they climb, they play, they fall. They also are like very willing to laugh and dance and cry. And they generally don't care what other people think about them. And there's a lot. There's so many lessons to learn from that. In, in all of those aspects. And, you know, the movement's just one part. And then, you know, if we're open-minded, we see that seeing them will nourish us. And then as we practice, we teach them that it doesn't go away. It's a mindset. It's a lifestyle. It's a way of living. And they could see that, oh, you know, it's a sustainable thing. You don't have to uh, hang it up when you get a job and there's a chair for you to sit in and kind of give up on being young. You mentioned you can hold your breath and boy, that's an understatement, Erwan. Um, the national record holder, six is, am I saying this right? Six minutes and 46 seconds, you held your breath? Okay, so um, <clears throat> let's, let's, let's set this straight. Um, yes, uh, actually I can hold my breath for eight minutes. Um, there are two, so, there are two world federations for what's called free diving. And holding your breath the longest possible in a static fashion without moving is one of the disciplines. There are also holding your breath while you are swimming in the water with no fins, with fins, with a monofin, and you can do the same also going down at depth. So those are incredibly hard uh, feats and they sound it. So one of them is just holding your breath, doing nothing else, but which is pretty easy. You know, you just hold your breath, you wait. <laughs> yeah, so, wait for eight minutes. Uh, yeah, easy. All right. Okay. So I hold one of the two national records, which is uh, at 646. And in January, I'll attempt to break it. Um, but my personal record is at eight minutes, two seconds. And that was last January. So I believe that I'm beyond that at this point. Yeah. That is because just... I've done seven minutes twice, but here at the altitude where I live, which is um, 7,600 feet or something like that. Okay. So uh, 2,300 feet elevation. <clears throat> so that would equal technically on the paper to something beyond eight minutes, more like between 8.30 and nine minutes. So you I really notice a difference as you change elevation? Oh, yeah, obviously, yes. The, uh, you know, the, the atmospheric pressure is less. So that means that the uh, concentration of oxygen is less um, also. So it's not that there is less oxygen in percentage, but there is less oxygen in concentration per volume of air it's it's a little um okay so it's I, never easy I to expect 
I definitely looking to learn a bit more about that. So I've been practicing breath work for a while, a um, bunch of different styles, many through like yoga practices, different pranayama, uh, played with Wim Hof a little bit, Buteyko breathing. And um, sure. I love, I love it all. I find, you know, there's, there's like a style for every mood I'm in to deploy, you know, and, and enjoy. And recently, um, I guess you came back in my field awareness. It was on my feed. I don't know if it was on uh, one of the social media platforms. And I was like, oh, man, I haven't seen anything from Ron in a while. And it was about breathing. And you had like a little mini course to do it. And it was interesting because most of the I've done a lot of breath holds, nothing in the ballpark. I think I've flirted with three minutes before, but nothing nothing crazy like the numbers you're putting out there but uh i i do find that i could pretty much in any given moment get to one or two minutes and get some really neat benefits from it i find but what i've noticed is i've really i don't know if it's because what's been taught to me or i've really just gravitated towards these breath holds where they're exhale holds essentially so regardless of the style that's leading up to the hold I generally feel really comfortable holding my breath uh, either at the end of the exhale or, you know, starting with a really long exhale. And your first message that I received was really a different style where the breath hold is after the inhale, which, you know, um, innately seems right. Like that's if so, if you said, go hold your breath to someone and didn't tell them anything, they'd probably inhale and then hold their breath. But I've yeah. learned all these practices that are like the other way around, and I've got a lot of benefits and joy out of them. I uh, was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about maybe that difference or why that why that that's what's on that initial hello of your mini course. Like, what is it about that style of breath that you find offers something that the other styles seem to to miss out? Well, so first off. Um... I too hold my breath after exhales, either passive exhales, a natural exhale, or forced exhales. And there are benefits to that. And it, it is also part of what I call breath hold work, which is my method. So breath hold work is both breath work and breath hold work. So it's not only the practice of breath, which is diverse ways to change your ventilation so let's call breathing because <clears throat> there's a lot to understand um in order to answer a question i need to reframe things a bit sure when we breathe that's ventilation we inhale we exhale that's ventilation it's the biomechanical part of our breathing then there's the breathing within, which is called cellular respiration. It's what's happening at a biochemical level within our cells, that gas exchange, that primarily the goal of that is to keep us oxygenated because without oxygen, we know that our cells are going to die. And when cells die, it's no good because we die too. Like the whole thing is dying. So when you are going to 
change the way you breathe, the ventilation. You're gonna play with it, you're gonna manipulate it, you're gonna modify it. It's not the way you would typically breathe reflexively when you do something else, you watch a show, you work, you do anything else. You don't think about breathing, it's taken care of, it's taken care of by your autonomic nervous system. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh wait, wait, I'm breathing and I could change that. Wow, it's powerful. Like I can consciously decide that I'm going to modify my breathing instead of let it be. And then you have all these different exercises, these, these different methods. And if you think about it, there are almost countless ways you could modify your breathing just because you can. Now what few people understand is what is exactly going to happen at a cellular level of breathing, the cellular respiration, whenever you change the way you normally breathe, because there will always be an impact internally on your cellular respiration and on your nervous system. What is that impact? Well, it depends on the way you manipulate your breathing. And this is not always taught by the people who tell you how to do the exercises and just tell you, do the exercise that way. They may not tell you, okay, this is what's gonna to happen to your cellular respiration if you do that. And this is what's going to happen to your nervous system if you do that. The problem with that is that, <clears throat> do you actually need that exercise in the moment? who needs what and for what benefit because you could be in a place where you're not physiologically ready or neurologically ready for what that specific breathing drill is going to do to you but you've not been told that because you're part of a group or because it's just okay just do that and do the exercise and that's it don't ask questions so <clears throat> i guess the first point i want to say is be careful the way you modify your breathing because it does have an impact and that impact is not always beneficial it's not always like oh i see rainbows and i feel relaxed and no it's not always that <laughs> it's not always that because it depends on again on what is your current state physiologically and neurologically and what do you need and then there is the uh, practice of holding your breath. Now you talk about um, ventilation. Well, there's no more ventilation at all. You're not even really manipulating your ventilation or you are ultimately manipulating it because you're just pausing it. You don't breathe at all. You don't inhale, you don't exhale no more. Now, what is this going to happen uh, to, to trigger and what is going to happen within at a physiological level and a neurological level. And why would you do that? And how do you do that? Well, again, so there are different ways to do that as well. Why is it that I do it primarily after a large, large inhale? <clears throat> well, because there are more benefits. Overall, there are more benefits to doing it that way than doing it after an exhale. Can you speak to some of those benefits? Absolutely. One of them being what is called CO2 tolerance. 
which is the ability to tolerate elevated levels of CO2 in your system, starting with your bloodstream and your lungs. So when you pause all ventilation, your cells keep being alive and your cells keep using oxygen and you keep, as a result, generate what's called CO2, carbon dioxide. That carbon dioxide has nowhere to go. Normally it would be exhaled, but now it's retained. So it accumulates in your bloodstream. It changes the biochemistry of your bloodstream. Increase an increase of CO2 means a decrease in pH. Your blood becomes more acidic. Your respiratory centers, which are in your what's called the, the brainstem in the medulla oblongata, you have chemoreceptors. They are receptors, chemical receptors, central chemoreceptors. They sense that there is that elevation in the acidity of the blood, and that's typically a problem. Means well, you need to ventilate more, you need to breathe more to exhale that. But because you don't, it keeps going up. And so it means that it's going to alert you, it's going to agitate you, it's going to stress you big time. So you see when you exhale, you will want to breathe much earlier. But when you take a large breath, you have a lot of air in your tank, you have a lot of oxygen, therefore you do not have any concern to have about the oxygenation of your body or including the oxygenation of your brain. That is not the problem you're dealing with. When you want to breathe, that's not because you start lacking oxygen. It's because the buildup of CO2 gets so high that you start to stress because of that. So that the ability to handle that stress is very important. And obviously when you start your breath hold after exhaling, you will not have a lot of time to generate that CO2 buildup and therefore to have to learn to calm your mind through that. So that's number one. It's your ability to, what I call, to downregulate at the neurological level. And number two, when you take a large breath, you are, and then you're going to hold it. <clears throat> so you're holding a level of pressure inside your lungs called intra thoracic pressure or intrapulmonary pressure, that's unusual and that's higher than what you're used to. That too is a stress. So now you're dealing with two internal stressors and your ability to deal with an internal stressor is basically your own ability to deal with stress. So you're learning to deal with stress, how to respond to stress. But at a physical and physiological level, the fact that your lungs are full and held for minutes at a time or a certain amount of time and they're stretched, well, this is going to improve their elasticity. This is going to improve their diffusion power, means how fast, how much oxygen and how fast transitions from the inside of your lungs into your bloodstream is going to increase what's called alveolar area which is uh, the inner surface of your lungs that's exposed to air, the air that you breathe. 
And there's a correlation between the size of your lungs in that alveolar area and longevity. So it's good for longevity. It's good for oxygenation. Basically, when you train this way, by the way, you were asking about the difference between holding your breath on full lungs and holding your, your breath after an exhale. Well, when you hold your breath after an exhale, you keep your lungs small. So you don't grow a pair of lungs. You don't. You want to grow a pair of lungs. Actually, we have three lobes. So, I mean, it's a pair of lungs. We have two lungs. We have three lobes. Um, they have a certain size. And it is known by the whole medical uh, field that elderly people who have a greater what's called vital capacity basically they have bigger lungs enjoy better quality of life greater health greater longevity why because if your lungs are bigger and typically when they're bigger means they're bigger because they exercise they are being exercised more through exercise through like running or anything like that but also breath holding when you breathe normally your regular breathing. It's easier, more economical for you to breathe. So you, you make less effort. You provide less effort just doing regular breathing. It's more economical. So it's just you are like more you're, you're flexing a muscle, you're making it stronger, and then yes. it makes everything else easier for it. Like the everyday yeah. uh, demands yes. of it become easier. Yes, exactly. When I'm so I've been practicing a little bit um, and it's interesting because when I do big inhales, they're, they're usually not hold. So I don't linger long enough to notice some of the nuance. And now that I've been playing around with it, I'm noticing like like even um, like I have more awareness of where the restrictions in my ribs are because I'm 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 creating that. I guess intrapulmonary pressure. There's yeah. there's a pressure on my ribs, yes. and as you sit there for um, you know a minute or so, you have time to like notice things, like how they feel, and I'm I'm discovering areas of like stuckness where there's not as much movement. It's not it doesn't feel even. Whereas if I wasn't holding, I don't think I would ever notice that. So it's giving me um, like little lessons of like. Hey, what are you what are you neglecting over here? Are you mm -hmm. lacking some mobility, some range of motion in your in your ribs? And I assume that that would improve just through practice from from creating that. Yes, from the inside. Yes, that absolutely, and also so it will improve your um, your your tolerance to the. It's a form of mild. It's a mild form of stress. The great thing about this kind of practice, it's obviously one of those mindful practices where stresses are internal. They're not external. It's not cold. Cold is external. Heat is external. Um, it's just you. And you, by the way, you can stop the stress anytime you want. You can breathe anytime you want. It's easy. Right. Okay, so you may have a conscious decision. It's a mindful decision. I'm going to hold my breath for as long as I can, for instance, or for a whole minute. So it's a conscious decision, right? It's deliberate. And then you're doing it, and then you feel stressed. Then you're like, 
Oh, wait, no, I don't want to do that anymore. So there are levels here of, you know, psychological considerations. Do you have commitment? Do you have self-discipline? Do you have courage? Do you have self-compassion because you're suffering? Uh, but do you have indeed resiliency and an ability to commit? Then because of the biochemical changes, and it's not just biochemical, okay, it's also at a hormonal level, um, it's all whole neural, neurophysiological processes that are taking place. It's basically your autonomic nervous system, which is another part of your consciousness, another part of your brain, it's not another person, it's just the same person that says, knock, knock, um, listen up, um, you know, um, big guy. I know you think you are on top of the world and you're the king or the queen. You said you were going to hold your breath no matter what, but if you keep doing that, it's dangerous, whatever. It's perceived as a threat. And it's gonna do all it can to defeat you and to resume ventilation. So basically you have a conflict of, of power within you. The one mindful mind that says, I choose, so I decide, so, and then the autonomic nervous system that says, excuse me, but no, you're not going to be in charge no more. I'm in charge. I'm in charge of survival, so I'm going to agitate you. You're going to feel horrible. You're going to feel emotionally unstable, negative. Your thoughts are going to start being negative, too. You're going to start fighting yourself with your own decision. You'll lose all peace, all clarity, all centeredness and you'll breathe again. So how do you meditate through this? And that's the question. How do you know thyself better? Because everybody knows that it's not going to be pleasant. And if you keep doing it, it's gonna be an ordeal. And you will even obviously question the necessity to do this. Like why even do this in the first place? That's ridiculous. There's got to be a way to meditate that actually makes me peaceful and centered. When you think about it, conventional meditation implies that you avoid all and any kind of stress. Two, you will use slow breathing to help quiet your mind. Now, how can you call a breathful work and meditation, holding your breath and meditate at the same time? When one, it instantly creates, triggers an internal stress, a physiological stress that obviously becomes a neurological stress, a psychological stress, an emotional stress. So how do you respond to that stress that you and nobody else creates? You can't say, hey, you're doing this to me. No, you're doing this to yourself. Number one, you made the decisions and I deal with it. And two, well, can I use breathing and like the regulation of my breathing to de-agitate, to call my mind, to center my mind, to reclaim stillness? Well, no, you can't because you're all in your breath. Oh, all right. So how do I center my mind, tranquilize my mind, and establish peace and stillness when I cannot use breath 
and when I'm dealing with the stress which is caused by not breathing. And that is precisely why it's a very powerful form of meditation. So do you feel everybody has to kind of create their their own little internal hacks or thought processes to navigate through that very question where you can't rely on your breath? Like nobody could really tell you how to do that. Or I mean, maybe, I guess you can get ideas, but do you feel like that's something that just really has to be discovered through practice and self-exploration? Well, why, why would you assume that it cannot be learned and taught? That's exactly what I That's what teach. you do, yeah. That's exactly what I teach. Because who has not tried and played around with this? Clearly you say, right. yeah. Um, and all my students have as well including some who who are and where experienced meditators people who've done a lot of meditation but that meditation does not and did not apply to breath holding why it's, a, it's an interesting concept you don't have the breath the tool that you want to rely on to to get through that like the managing of the stress involved or you know even if it's just the conflicts that come up in your mind, the the narrative that's being that's emerging, that's telling you to that there's a, a fight there to deal with. You know the the stress thing. So I remember hearing a study um, talking about stress and the like the hormetic the positive response to stress and how there's a there's a line that you cross like. If it's a voluntary stress, it's a very positive hormetic stress response you get compared to involuntary. I think now, granted, I think it was like a rat study where they force them to exercise or they give them the choice to exercise. They each do the they do the same exercise, so they have the same um, like nominal amount of stress, but it's perceived differently because one's jumping on the machine and one's being put there essentially you know like you when you know it's coming and you're and you're choosing it there's a much better like more positive physiological response you get from that stress as opposed to just uh you know getting the negative part without the positive rebound or something do you think there's something to be said for that like you're creating this mild stress, and then you're managing it, and you're kind of flexing the muscle. You're strengthening your ability to just um, manage a stress, and it, and you get this positive physiological benefit because you put yourself in there. It wasn't like you were thrown into a fiery pit. You kind of prepared and cleared your mind, and and walked into and walked over the coals or whatever. Like you, there's a a psychological component to it that really alters the type of benefit, the type of response that comes from the practice. Do you think there's something to be said about that? Because you're, you're, th that sounds stressful. I mean, when you talk about a breath hold, you're right. Like you're fighting innate forces that want that where your autonomic nervous system wants you to do something very different than your, than your, what you're doing. Yeah. And the point is to align is to align all your different selves, basically. It's almost like we're there there are several of us inside. <clears throat> there are different uh, executive functions of the brain. 
so you have that conscious mind that makes the decision of, let's say, holding your breath for a certain amount of time for the longest time possible. And then you have uh, the autonomic nervous system, and then you have a limbic brain, you have different parts of a brain. They have different responses. They try to make sense of the experience. They try to make sense of how to handle what is necessarily perceived as a threat because you, you know consciously, but also the, these other parts of your brain or parts of your nervous system also know that the uh, end result of, if you keep doing that, is death. And that is a serious matter. So to find peace and relaxation with that kind of perspective, both conscious and unconscious, is where it's at because anyone can agitate anyone can be like this is horrible i hate it why am i doing that and i it sucks and it's painful or it, it's um whatever <clears throat> anyone can respond that, that way anyone can also try to use their willpower the same kind of willpower that makes you run a bit faster, try to lift a little heavier, um, try to suck it up, whatever it is when it's unpleasant. Keep going, keep going. Um, you can try to use that kind of willpower. It will take you a bit further, but it's also a form of agitation. And agitation will defeat you ultimately. So yeah, you, you really have to enter relaxation. Um, yes, it's, it's all predictable, in fact. It's, you can predict the whole context where you hold your breath. Is it going to be in a certain location and a certain time um, with light around you, no light sounds around you, no sounds, the, where you sit or do you lay down in what position? how long you're gonna hold your breath for. Do you hold your breath after an exhale, after a forced exhale, after a maximum inhale? And then once you get started, all you know is that it only gets worse. <laughs> and to find amusement in that, or even excitement, or detachment, to find detachment is actually best. You may have a moment of excitement because let's say you want to surpass yourself, but before you hold your breath, you will have to detach from everything. You'll have to detach from your worries, from your self-confidence. If you, you need confidence, but it can't be cocky, you need uh, motivation, but it can't be like, let's do it, let's do it. It's, it's not that way. Everything has to be very, very calm, very, very calm. So it's really a school of learning who you are and how you choose to respond to what is inherently a challenging experience that can 
easily turn into complete negativity and to achieve goodness at every level, a positive mind, clear, confident, trusting, patient, self-compassionate, equanimity and consistency all the way, all the way, all the way, all the way. That is where it's at. So it's a really a practice of the mind, but who is the mind? We are the mind. So it's the mind practicing itself. That is the very foundation of meditation, the mind observing itself but also the mind fashioning itself. And this is very important because in meditation, you will typically be told to let yourself think and just observe your thinking. Well, let me tell you that observing your thinking when you hold your breath, that's not going to get it. Because by default, whoever you are, even if you're a monk in the Himalayas, you'll get very negative quickly. And you'll have all sorts of negative thoughts. So observing your negative thoughts is not going to help you. When you meditate, typically, you know that you will observe yourself thinking and probably thinking more than you would like to think and thinking all of a sudden about things, we're like, why am I even thinking about that? What does that even matter? Or what's the meaning of this? So can you hold your breath, just letting yourself randomly think about whatever? You could, but that's not going to help you establish what you need. We're talking about clarity. We're talking about centeredness, do you really, can you really afford the luxury of whatever random thoughts to happen or do you have to really master your inner experience? And that's the point. What I teach people is how they're going to master their inner experience. It should not be random thoughts about whatever. It should not be all negativity because again, you don't need to learn that. It's by default our response, a universal response. What is challenging is to establish the opposite of that, which is goodness, the antidote. You are going to be impatient. Well, it is in your hands to establish patience. Where does that patience come? from the same place that impatience comes from. <laughs> then you said commitment and then now you want to quit. Where does commitment come from? From the same place that lack thereof comes from, etc., etc., etc. You're not trusting the experience. You feel threatened. That's why you want to quit. Well, you want to establish trust. Where does that trust come from? Same place, your lack of 
stress comes from, same place um, your feeling of, of being threatened comes from, from the exact same place, from the very core of who you are. And who you are is not the house you own or rent or the car or the job or the name or the clothes or friends and the whole whatever happened to you and what your body looks like now at your age, your gender, your whatever. That is not who you are. Who you are is who you choose to express and experience in this very moment. That is who you are in every moment. So what is being expressed? What do you choose to express? Because whatever you're going to express under that form of stress is going to be who you choose to be. And if you have a clarity and the consistency to express patience and trust, self-compassion um, and love while you are under a stress that you yourself created it's very likely that you will be able to that ability and those qualities will carry over carry over other um, circumstances of life when you do have an interaction with the with the people with the world because when you are holding your breath you're in your bubble there's no interaction with the world you are the whole world and the only interaction you have is with yourself what is happening there but not when you have a luxury of breathing maybe floating and you know like relaxing some gentle music a bit of incense a little candle is good no 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 now that's easy to, that's relatively easy, right? Not that easy, by the way. Even in that kind of context, some people are still bringing on all their stress, all their worries. What's going to happen? And that person's bothering me and this and that. So imagine, <clears throat> no incense, no music, no mala, no mantra, not even slow breathing. Just hold your breath, stress yourself out, and now you choose who you want to who you want to be through the kind of response that you create, you, and nothing else. You're the world in this moment. Anything that happens, anything that is being experienced, is on you. That's beautifully said. And I guess through that practice, as you develop mm -hmm. your essentially your relationship with yourself. It, it will translate to how you relate to all other things, whether it be loved ones, environment, whatever. I mean, you are altering the way that you show up in the world. That won't make you perfect. Uh, that won't make you um, um, insensitive or, or, or all positive. And, but you will definitely, um, if you can achieve um, this kind of emotional, um stability and, and clarity yeah, yeah you, and mental, you're, and mental you're, clarity in in that context it's very likely that it will support also being a you know having the ability to respond or to interact that way with others not a guarantee obviously 
Um, but you're, you're cultivating the quality. So the quality yes. will get stronger. Like as you become more yes. self-compassionate through that practice, as you practice, you become a more self-compassionate person. Yes. And it starts obviously within. Yeah. Uh, you have a beautiful way of explaining these things and it's very inspiring. I feel like it's inspiring me. Like I'm looking forward to going to another level and deepening my own practice. And uh, I would like to take one of your courses. So from what I understand, you offer online courses. Are they, do they have like a live component to it or? Uh, I have one e-course. It's called the Breathful Work Meditation okay. course. Um, and so it's a, it's four modules and you have um, like more than a hundred videos. There's a, a lot of insights. I connect a lot of dots. Okay. And where do we, is that at breathholdwork.com? Yes, it is. Okay. And then uh, there is a live, I do the same, I cover the same content within um, eight sessions in one week for, uh, sorry, four weeks, one month. It's a live version of it. The next um, starts uh, early January. I've oh, soon. Eight okay. groups. And, uh, you know, um, on top of, you know, people report that their day-to-day -day breathing rate, you know, the speed at which they breathe is really, really reduced. So uh, people learn to breathe much slower than before. Take less breaths, which is, which quiets the hearts, quiets the minds. And also they report a lot of uh, just being much more calmer, much calmer in their life. And yeah. of course, there's also the aspect which is um, their ability to hold their breath a much, much longer time. So we're talking about people who can barely hold their breath for a minute and then end up being able to hold their breath for four minutes. Uh, we've had people who were able to hold their breath for five and for some six minutes. So everyone at least doubles, if not triples, quadruples. We have had cases of people multiplying their breath holding ability by five. That's wild. Oh. And that's without hyperventilation. Okay. So we're not going our, we're not doing this just, and most importantly, because that's within four weeks you are going to have some physiological adaptations within four weeks, but they cannot explain that somebody would triple, quadruple their breath all time. The reason and the explanation is because they learn tolerance. They learn to tolerate. And how do they learn to tolerate? They learn to tolerate by understanding what is exactly going on in their body, in their mind, in their heart. and many many tools many insights many tools that i connect to just be completely present and at the same time detached from it all it's that's the paradox it's uh, presence and detachment at the same time nice tolerance is an important word i feel like right now um if you well if you peer through your your screen your device and get a glimpse of what goes on in the world there's room for a lot more tolerance in general. It's the story and of the world, I think. It's a, it's always a, has been, always will be. It's an overlooked quality, and breath work is just one more tool, I guess, to practice that. My favorite thing about the tool of our breath is 
you know, it's it's just with you all the time. It's portable. It's free. And everybody has access to it. There's no socioeconomic barrier. There's, you know, just a very low price of entry. And um, it it still goes overlooked, underrated. Yeah, I mean, better than any tool you could find in the gym, whatever. It's like, it's the best and we all have it. So uh, I, I'm honored to be a conduit for your message to hopefully inspire mm-hmm. others to... Um, to look inward, to dive a little deeper themselves and see what is, what's there to offer themselves through that practice. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know we're a little bit past when you had to get out of here, so I want to get you out of here, but we will link to breatholdwork.com. I want to look in. Hopefully, I will see you in that course in January, Erwan. Um, that sounds fantastic. And for the listeners out there, I really appreciate you tuning in. I hope you got some value out of this conversation. And um if you have any questions, send them my way. And if I can't answer it, we'll see if we can get or want to and follow up. Thanks, everybody. Have a terrific day. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to my conversation with Erwan LaCour. I hope that you found some inspiration from this. If you're not already used to looking at your outdoor space as an extension of your living space, then I encourage you to, to explore. What does your environment have to offer you when you change the lens that you see it through? Also, if you're not used to doing breath hold work, I encourage you to dip your toe in it and see what there is to experience. Both of these modalities, whether it's integrating the outdoors with your movement and exercise and fitness practices or going deeper in the way you manipulate your breath and alter your relationship with your autonomic nervous system, whatever it is, there are upgrades in your sense of well-being through those practices. So I encourage you to explore and I hope this conversation can be the spark you need to take a, a next step. Thanks again for tuning in and I hope everybody has a terrific day.